I invite you to open uh, your Bibles with me to Second Peter chapter 2 this morning. And this chapter is really devoted to Peter laying out not only the sins, but the judgments of false teachers that were plaguing the church in the first century. Of course, we've always had false teachers. There will always be that threat in the church. And so what Peter is uh, describing in the first century are things that still go on today, sadly, in different times and places. So he wants us to be aware of that. And uh, let me begin reading in Second Peter chapter 2. And uh, previously he had talked about the judgment of God on these false teachers. And now he's going to give us a whole laundry list of their sins. So starting in verse, let me start in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, and again he's talking about the false teachers, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. For he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, Restrained the madness of the prophet. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. So this is kind of a, one of those passages that's quite amazing. Again, Peter has just laid out the certainty of the judgment of these false teachers. He has referred to how God has judged the angels who sinned. He judged the whole generation in the days of Noah when He brought this worldwide flood. And he also judged the Sodomites at Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the days of Lot. So now in this picture, this passage, Peter is going to paint for us a full-length portrait of these false teachers. It's a devastating, ugly, grotesque picture of their vile sinfulness. And Peter paints with short, abrupt brushstrokes 
which fill the canvas, if you will, with a, with a rap sheet of the spiritual crimes committed by these false teachers against God. As you remember, as we read through it, it's like a rapid fire assessment and catalog of their sins. And basically, Peter is setting this forth so the church can be warned not to compromise or allow these kinds of teachers within the church. So he is exposing them. He is denouncing them. And he's warning the church, do not accept these kinds of teachers in your fellowship. So he has in his crosshairs primarily the warning against false teachers. But there's a secondary application because these same sins that false teachers fall into, anybody can fall into. And so there's really a warning for the church to beware of these kinds of sins. One of the uh, truths that it's bringing out in this passage is that bad doctrine leads to bad living. Now remember back up in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter has already told us that these false teachers have introduced destructive heresies denying the Master who bought them and bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So they're spreading these destructive heresies. That's bad doctrine. And the bad doctrine leads to bad living. And that's what he's going to emphasize in our passage this morning. This is one of the things the Lord Jesus wanted His disciples to understand when He said in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So Peter begins to launch into this in verse 10. And uh, notice how he begins to introduce some of the indictments, some of the general categories of the sins that he's going to spell out in detail. He speaks of those false teachers that will be judged by God, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires. And that's a general reference to the sensuality that was going on uh, within the church led by these false teachers. It's a sensuality, the indulging of the flesh and these corrupt desires. And then secondly, they despise authority. And that speaks to their general arrogance, their, their pride. So what Peter's going to do is basically unpack this part of verse 10. And he's going to do it in reverse order. He's going to talk about the arrogance of the false teachers in verses 10b through verse 13a. Then the sensuality that was being promoted within the church in verses 13b through 14a. And then he's going to add one more, and that is the greed, the love of money that was found not only with the false teachers, but was also showing up within the body as well under their influence. So that's what we're going to look at. So let's begin with the first one, arrogance. 
Notice how he begins to develop this in verse 10. He says that these false teachers are daring and self-willed. Daring meaning they're, they're bold, they're loud, they're in your face. They're self-willed meaning they're arrogant, they're stubborn, they're seeking their own will, they're headstrong, they want to have it their way. They oppose the leaders of the church so they can get their way. And they're really kind of cousins of Frank Sinatra. When he sang that song, I did it my way. Well, that's basically their philosophy of ministry. We're going to do it my way. Being self-willed actually disqualifies you from being an elder. That's what Paul wrote to, Timothy, to, to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. But here these self-willed men have managed to become teachers within the church. Now notice what Paul goes on to add to that. He says they're not only daring and self-willed, but they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties is the way the New American Standard translates it. Your Bible may translate it differently. That expression, angelic majesties, is literally the word glories in the Greek. It's a plural noun. So these false teachers, they don't tremble when they, when they revile glories. So the question is, what does the glories actually refer to? And there's probably two leading answers. One of them is that the glories refer to the leaders within the church who in some way are <clears throat> described as being glories. They are to reflect the glory of God, if you will. And these false teachers don't tremble when they revile the leadership of the church. That's one particular view. They don't submit to church leadership. They criticize them because they're self-willed. They want their own way. They want to teach whatever they want to teach. The other view is that these glories are angelic majesties, primarily fallen angels. That would be demons. You say, well, how are they called glories? That seems to be a, a strange way to refer to fallen angels as being glories. But if you take this view, possibly the way to understand this is that these demons are called glories not because they are good angels, but because they are created by God originally with certain glorious powers and abilities which they have now given over to sin and their rebellion against God. But originally they were given these powers and abilities to reflect God's glory and even though now they have sinned and they're fallen angels, they're demons, and they use their, their powers for evil purposes, they're still connected with that sense of having uh, the root of these powers. They're using it for evil, but they still possess them. They're, they're still powerful beings. So many commentators think that's the way to go with this. The way to interpret it. If you go on to read verse 11, it seems to make sense. Peter says in verse 11, he's contrasting the false teachers who are bold and brash and they don't tremble when they revile these demons. 
Whereas angels, the good angels, the holy angels, who are greater in might and power than the false teachers, they don't even bring reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So that possibly could be the right idea. In support of that, if you look at the letter of Jude, Jude and Second Peter are very much parallel, particularly in this section of Second Peter. And Jude says something very similar to this in his letter. He's speaking about false teachers. And he says in verse 8 that they also reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But then notice the example that he gives. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. So possibly that's the same idea that Peter has. That these false teachers, they're bold, they're brash, they're out there uh, reviling the demons, reviling the evil spirits as if they were greater than they were. As if they had more authority and power than the demons do. And what Peter is saying, no, even the holy angels don't revile the demons, but they turn them over to the Lord to deal with. Just like Michael did with the devil over this issue of the body of Moses. So the angels before God restrain their speech out of a sense of the holiness of God. But these false teachers don't care about the holiness of God. They're they're so conceited and arrogant. They're so full of themselves. They think they have authority over all things, including the demons. You find this error really among the faith healers today and in a lot of those kinds of Pentecostal movements because the leaders oftentimes will stand up and just denounce the devil as if they had the authority to do that. Devil, I bind you, or whatever they might say. And yet, Michael the archangel said, no, I won't even denounce the devil, but Lord, you rebuke him. And that really should be our attitude. Sometimes this teaching about the authority we have in Christ is greatly exaggerated and abused and given us a false sense of our authority. Now, our authority comes to Christ. We look to Christ to do that. And I think that's probably what Peter has in mind here. There's an old saying that says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And I really think that's kind of what Peter's talking about and it's certainly what what Jude is talking about as well. Well, Peter goes on and describes these false teachers next. He's still talking about their arrogance, their pride, He says in verse 12, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. So now Peter is describing these false teachers as dumb and stupid animals. Animals that have no reasoning powers. They're just driven by their base instincts. And he's saying these false teachers, they're just like these animals. They're stupid. They're full of themselves. They're arrogant. They really don't know what they think they know. 
They're unreasoning. They're irrational. They just live by their instincts. They're driven by their passions. They're driven by their flesh. And notice how he says they're born as creatures of instinct just to be captured and killed. What's, what Peter says in, in the Greek, this word born, he uses a perfect tense, which means they have been born and to this day they continue in that same condition. And I think what he's kind of implying is that they've been born in the flesh, but they've never been born again. They have the physical birth, but they're still in that condition. That's all they have. They don't have the spiritual birth. They're not redeemed. They are not saved. They're like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct. And when he says that they're to be captured and killed, it suggests that these false teachers are looked, should be looked upon as being a threat as being destructive to property. So that basically they should be hunted down. You need to go out and hunt them down and capture them and kill them just like you would uh, these animals, these wild animals. I'm not literally talking about going out and killing the false teachers, but he's saying basically that's what God's going to do to them. God's going to judge them. They're just like these dumb animals that are Captured and killed because they're a threat to God's people. So just just think about back then they would have had crops and livestock and wolves or foxes or bears or lions could come in and and raid their livestock or mice and rats and rodents and deers and gazelles could come in and eat their crops or deadly snakes could be running around or causing havoc, biting people. These are the kind of animals you've got to go out and capture them and then kill them. And basically that's what God's going to do. And in the destruction of those animals, they are a prototype. They're an example of what's going to happen to the false teachers. God's going to destroy them like these kinds of dangerous animals need to be destroyed as well. He goes on to to say that they are reviling where they have no knowledge so that these false teachers revile things that they don't know anything about. Whether it's demons or angels or biblical doctrines or biblical morality. They claim to know what is right and wrong yet look at their lives. You see a fleshliness, a worldliness in their lives. These false teachers operate on the wisdom of man, on worldly wisdom. They forsake the fear of the Lord. And as pride comes before the fall, they're going to be like these dangerous animals. God is going to destroy them. They will fall because of their arrogant heart. And then we can, as we continue in this list in verse 13, Peter still addressing their arrogance. He's saying, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And here he's basically saying that these false teachers and anyone who follows them, anyone who's falling into these same attitudes of pride and arrogance, they reap what they sow. That's kind of what he's summarizing this as. 
The wages of the wrongdoing is to suffer wrong themselves. And Peter here employs a play on words. He goes on to add that they count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. And this is really an indictment. Most people will go out and do their sinning under the cover of darkness at nighttime. Not these guys. Not those who are being influenced in the church. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their sin knows no time barriers. They'll just do it right out in the open. They'll do it in broad daylight. They waste their time on sinful pursuits. Instead of working during the day, like most people would, they go out and crowds during the day. They don't work at all. They just do it whenever they want to. They count it a pleasure to revel. That is just to live it up in their sinful lifestyle in the daytime. Why? Because they're arrogant. They think they can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And that's part of the mark of these false teachers. They are arrogant. They are proud. They are boastful. And sometimes we can all be persuaded and tempted to follow suit. And then Peter switches to a second category of their sinfulness. And that is their sensuality. He notice in verse 13 in the second part, he says, there are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So now he describes them as stains and blemishes. And you can just sense kind of some of the disgust of Peter. Stains and blemishes. You know, what do you have when you have a nice shirt or a dress and you spill ketchup all over it? Well, I was uh, had a nice white shirt and I was eating one of those little cherry tomatoes and I didn't completely close my mouth when I chomped down on it. And I think Patty had to wash it three or four times to get the stain out. But if there's too many stains, you ruin it. And that's what Peter's emphasizing. Their sins have ruined. It's unsightly. This uh, glorious garment of Christ, they have ruined it. Uh, They actually don't have it themselves, but they are stains and they are blemishes. All they do is bring about uh, distortion, moral defects that disqualify someone from the presence of God. See, when Isaiah says that we get saved and our sins are dealt with, he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will become what? Why the snow? Well, not for them. Their sins have still stained them. They have not been forgiven. They still carry the stains and the blemishes with them because they do not know the Lord. They're reveling in their deceptions. They're in the church. They're teaching in churches. They revel in their deceptions. Not only are they deceived, but they are deceiving. They're deceiving others. And in this you find their true connection. That there's a satanic influence in their lives. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of those false teachers in Corinth. He said that basically 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light just as false apostles disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And that's how they do it. They come into the church. They've got the language down. They know the right words to say. But basically, they are deceiving others. They're deceiving themselves. They're reveling in their deceptions and they're trying to convince you to join them in their sin. And then it says, and they carouse with you. And the word carouse, some of your Bibles may be translated feasting. And it may be very well a reference to the Lord's Supper and the fellowship meal that oftentimes is associated with it. And what Peter is saying is this is where they gain influence. During the fellowship meal, they'll sit down with you. And their conversation is not reverent and holy and encouraging you to pursue Christ and live more godly lives. No, their conversation is very worldly. Very irreverent. And that's how they stain and defile the church. They don't promote godly humility. They don't promote love and kindness. But they actually entice and stir up other people to follow them in their own sinful lifestyle. And that lifestyle of carousing is ultimately bringing us into this notion of sensuality. This is one of the the great sins that they were guilty of and promoting within the church. And Peter describes that in verse 14 when he says, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. This is what Peter literally wrote in verse 14 having eyes constantly full of an adulteress. In other words, these false teachers and trying to influence people within the church is, hey, adultery is fine. Living in sexual sin, okay. The pagans do it. They have their temple prostitution. That's how they worship their God. You know, some of that can come into our church as well. That's their influence. Having eyes constantly full of an adulteress. And this really puts a spotlight on what they're looking at and what they're looking for. And instead of looking at women in the church as sisters in Christ, looking upon them in all purity, they look upon every woman as a potential candidate for adultery. Their eyes and their hearts never stop sinning. And not only did this describe the false teachers in their midst, but it was a growing problem within the church. People were being influenced by it. Not Job in the Old Testament. Notice what he said. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? See, Job was a godly man. Job had a commitment involving his eyes that he would not gaze at another woman with those intentions, with those ideas. Jesus, of course, said the same thing. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The Lord is quite 
severe. Literally, he's not talking about literally going in and grabbing your eyeball and jerking it out, but that he's using that as a as a way to emphasize how drastic and severe we need to address the heart and the eyes that are roaming with sinful motives behind them. I think the warning here is to guard our eyes, men especially, but everyone need to guard our eyes to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul, Peter says in 1 Peter. In other words, men don't look at porn. It's a warning. Don't look at it. It will eat your soul. It will contaminate you. It will fill, fill, fill your heart with thoughts of immorality or adultery that you're committing in your heart. You cannot hide it. Just as Jesus said, it's still a sin. We need to repent of it. We need to seek grace from Christ. We need to renew our minds in the Word of God to, to deal with it and continue to fight against those temptations and pray for more grace. Notice what David said in Psalm 101, verse 3. He said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Well, that's why porn is pretty worthless, pretty evil. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Now, when did he write this? Was it before Bathsheba or after? Sometimes we learn by our mistakes. And thank God there is forgiveness with Jesus Christ to bring your filth, bring your rot, bring your wickedness before the cross of Christ and call out to the Lord to forgive you. And He promises that He will. And we pray for for more grace to guard our hearts and our minds so that we're not guilty of having eyes full of an adulteress that never cease from sin. See, that's the mark of the false teachers and those who follow their influence should not be a mark of believers. And those who struggle with these things, there is help in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But you must pursue Him. You must pursue the means of grace to help overcome it. Peter goes on to say that they are enticing unstable souls. This could be enticing... Women that are unstable. Women that are not founded with a moral and a doctrinal foundation to protect them from the advances of these false teachers or from others within the church. It could be a moral instability or a doctrinal instability. Later on in chapter 3, Peter's going to use the same word unstable for those who distort the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And so it could be a doctrinal instability or a moral instability. And if you're aware of a weakness like that in your life, and your heart, you have to be especially attentive to it and praying for God's protection and for God's grace. As the Lord teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. You need to be praying that all the time. But these guys are out enticing unstable souls. It also kind of reminds me of some of the health and wealth gospel 
one of my seminary professors made the comment that I thought was very interesting. He said that Pentecostals on the mission field never go out and seem to have success in establishing churches. But they go into areas where churches have already been established and they began to bring their health and wealth prosperity gospel and the unstable began to follow them. And suddenly they lose the, the glory of eternity and it's all about what can I get here and now? And so I think in many ways it, it's an indictment against how shallow and unstable so many believers can be that are tempted and seduced to follow these kinds of Gospels. The Apostle Paul warned the Ephesians. He says, don't be like children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Don't be children. Be mature in your faith. Be mature in your love for Christ. Be mature in your moral commitments. Don't be like these guys. And then Peter moves on to his last and final category of sin of these false teachers and those they have influenced within the church and that is just a love of money a lot of greed he says in verse 14 they have a heart trained in greed and that word trained comes right from the sports world comes from the olympics of the day so basically, they were training their hearts. They were devoting energy. They were practicing it to develop within their heart a preoccupation with materialism, with greed. Well, I got to have this. I got to have that. Always shopping. Always going online, looking at the next thing they want to buy. Training their hearts in greed. And that's the way the false teachers live because really their love is for money. They love money certainly more than they love God. So they are greedy children. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Popoff. Anybody heard of Peter Popoff? A few have. Back in the late 80s, <clears throat> he was one of these uh, uh, faith healers, health and wealth prosperity preachers. And back in the late 80s, he was exposed as a sham in his uh, services because he would stand up and he would identify, he would call out people in the, in the audience and he would reveal information supernatural that he should not be able to have, but he claimed that God would give it to him. Insights, issues about the diseases they're wrestling with. And then later it was found out that his wife was out in the foyer before the service mingling with people collecting the information and she was feeding it to him through a transmitter in his ear. And all that got exposed. It was big in the news. And uh, so he was shamed out of the ministry. But he's back, he's back on TV again. I just recently saw a commercial where he's giving away free miracle spring water. And if you call the number on the screen and get His miracle spring water, it will release prosperity in your life. And he said it was absolutely free. Just call the number. Well, I bet if you called that number, 
And I want to make it very clear, I did not call that number. But if you called that number, I'm sure there would be a ploy to get you to send them in money. Because that's what this guy is up to. He loves money. And though he can say it's free, when they get you on the phone, I guarantee you they're going to try to soak the callers for as much money as they can. And that's what Peter is saying about these people. They have a heart trained in greed. And then notice what he says, they're accursed. They are accursed children. They are under God's curse. And it's the very thing they deny. They deny the future judgment of God. But Peter says they're going to receive it because they are under God's curse. They're devoted to God's judgment. They are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction as Paul would describe them in Romans 9. You can see here Peter is not pulling punches at all. And his readers know exactly who he's talking about. In their minds, they're thinking of so-and-so and so-and-so. They know the names. They have the pictures of their faces in their minds. And he's just warning them. They are greedy people. And then he closes with this parallel with Balaam. This is a story you can read in the book of Numbers, verse, uh, chapters 22 through 24. And Balaam really becomes a classic example of a false teacher because he loved money. And his own ministry was focused on personal gain. That's Balaam. He apparently had a reputation for being a good cursor. Not a good kisser, but a good cursor. And probably the news spread around him, oh man, who... When Balaam puts a curse on your enemies, I mean, they're going to suffer maybe for years. And he had such a reputation about that that Balak wanted to hire him to come and curse Israel. Y'all all know the story. He probably was passing out his calling cards. Open your purse and your enemies I will curse. Or something like that. So Balak, Balak uh, liked what he heard. He wanted Israel cursed. They were getting too close to his own land. So he tried to entice Balaam with money. The Lord appeared to Balaam though and wouldn't let him go. Three times that happened. But the Lord knew the heart of Balaam. He knew the character of his heart. He knew that he was a lover of money. And the Lord eventually allowed Balaam to go with them to curse Israel. But, the sovereignty of God, though He went to curse, the Lord controlled His will, His mind, the very words that came out of His mouth, and He ended up blessing Israel three times, as we all know. But what Peter says in verse 15 of these false teachers, that forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And sadly, these people were in the ministry for the money. They didn't care about feeding the sheep. They wanted to shear the sheep and sell it on the market for the highest buck. That's all they cared about. 
They loved the wages of unrighteousness just like Balaam did. Now it's interesting that uh, when Peter describes Balaam here, he calls him the son of Beor, or some translations have Boser, or Boser, however you want to pronounce it. That's actually the way the Greek reads. Uh, it's, a, it's puzzling because we don't know what Boser actually relates to because of uh, the name Beor being the more familiar one. But many uh, have suggested that this Bosor, Bosor, comes from a Hebrew word that means flesh. Basar means flesh in Hebrew. And what Peter is doing is kind of changing his name as just another indictment that this is Balaam, the son of the flesh. He's not a spirit-filled man. He's a flesh-filled man. Because he just loves money. It's all about the money. Follow the money. And so Peter may very well be changing that name to give this little special dig into the character of his heart being full of the flesh. In verse 16 we read that Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgressions for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. So again, Peter's already described these false teachers like an unreasoning animal born as creatures of instinct. And now he says something similar when he says, here is the human, the false prophet Balaam, who had less discernment than a dumb donkey. Because remember, three times, Balaam's riding his donkey to go curse Israel, and God brings an angel of the Lord that appears before Balaam. Balaam doesn't see it. The donkey sees it. And the angel has a sword in his hands, and he's going to strike, or the angel has a sword in his hands, and he's going to strike down Balaam. Balaam doesn't see it. He's blind as a bat. The donkey sees it, and three times he pulls off to the side. Runs off to the field one time, runs into a wall the next time, and rubs Balaam's foot up against the wall and probably injures it. And the third time, the donkey just lies down. And in all three times, he saved Balaam's life because that angel would have struck him down dead. And all three times, Balaam, upset with his donkey, struck him. All three times, he hit his animal. And then the donkey who was given the gift of tongues, I guess, said, what have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And in effect, the donkey was rebuking Balaam for his own sin because ultimately he just wanted a paycheck. That's all he was wanting to do with get Balak's money for his ministry. So basically... Balaam was spiritually mad. He was insane, if you will. Not literally, but anyone who is serving the God of money is not thinking spiritually or soundly. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon, God and riches. And yet, that's what Balaam was trying to do. So Balaam ended up being dumber than the donkey. And Balaam's love of money drove him to disobey God's moral will and he prostituted himself for the sake of financial gain. 
And Peter is saying, don't let those guys teach in the church. Don't let them teach. And don't you let them influence you. For false teachers of Peter's day are enslaved to their pride, their arrogance, their sensuality, and their greed. And the churches that he's writing to, he's basically saying to them, warning them, get rid of those guys, expose them, remove them. Don't let these areas of sin come into your heart. Don't let them influence you. Guard your heart against their greed, their sensuality, and their pride. So basically the warning is to us in our own day and age. Certainly a warning to me, to anyone else who teaches within our church. It's also a warning to everyone sitting in the congregation today. That these are sins that are not just limited to those who teach. They are sins that anyone can fall into. And so we need to pray and pray for grace and heed the warning. We need to hold our leaders and ourselves to a higher standard of morality, humility, and the love of God. The encouragement in closing is that though maybe we have sinned in many ways and we have broken God's commandments in many ways, that there is hope of salvation, there is forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. These false teachers, guilty of all of this evil cataloged for us, can be saved and forgiven if they but repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And though their sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And it's our great privilege this morning, those of us who have come to Christ alone by faith for the forgiveness of our sins to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus Christ, if you've never acknowledged your own sin, then the Lord would have you to consider that. That there is a day of judgment coming. And when we stand before God, you will either plead the blood of Christ, which you have received sometime in your life, or you'll have to give an account and pay the penalty for your sins yourself. So we would ask you to consider your state before God, that you would acknowledge your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ to forgive you. For those of us who have done that, you know, we can read this list of sins and we can think, well, boy, I'm not like that. But that would be a mistake. That would be a great mistake. Because we still have sin. Just a lust of the heart. That's Christ says you've committed adultery. How many times have we become worldly and just greedy in our lifestyle? Or how about just the arrogance and the pride? The arguments we have with our spouse or our children. We demand our way. And we can see these sins in our own hearts at times. So that's why Christians need to be humble. That's why we need to acknowledge our own sin. And that's why we need the Lord's Supper. Because it's an opportunity for us to confess again our own sin and rejoice in glory in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which alone can 
Take away our sins and forgive us of all of our iniquities. It should be a joyful meal because we're still sinners, yet we love our Savior because He saved us, He's forgiven us. And now we, we get to worship Him and remember the brutal price that He paid to save you and me from our sins. The cross, the suffering, the crucifixion, the torment of His body and His soul so that we might be forgiven forever. When we pass the bread, we like to pass unleavened bread because it best symbolizes the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And we like to break the bread as an outward, even an audible reminder of just the crushing that He endured as He took away our iniquities. Sin does not deserve an easy death. And Christ's death was not easy. Not only did He endure the bodily torture of crucifixion, His soul had to endure the separation with His Father when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He endured a pain and a suffering that we cannot even begin to comprehend. We can just merely stand at a distance and by faith observe and praise Him for His love for us that He would go to the cross to save us from our sins. So as we pass the bread and the ushers can please come forward now. You can partake whenever you're ready or at the end. But before we pass it, we will give thanks for the bread. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have studied just the heinous sins of all these false teachers, O Lord, let us not think that we're any better in Your sight. For all sin brings the curse of God upon it. And we have sinned against You, Lord. But our hope and confidence is not that we're going to reform ourselves, not that suddenly we're going to be good people and earn our way to heaven, but our complete and total hope is that we have a Savior today. This Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and lived that perfect life and died as our substitute on the cross, bearing our sins, suffering the penalty that we should endure in hell. But He did it because He loved us. He suffered a suffering that we could never imagine, all because He loved us. So melt our hearts, Lord, in love and humility and praise as we celebrate Your cross in the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.